about a big round of applause. Thank you very much to be here. Hello, thank you so much for having us. Yes, hi, appreciate it's a big it. Pleasure for us. <laughs> this is, it's that museum is incredible. That is so cool. And the robot that's standing to your left is so realistic. Yeah, absolutely. It is exactly, exactly as you say. It's cool and everything's realistic because every detail is, was um, uh, followed with all cure possible. So it deserves to be seen ever in your life, one time. Come and visit the Museum of Carrasco. Believe yeah, me. but it, it looks like to your Sarah, left there's an old Italian man, magician, that's been following you, and I didn't know robots could do that. The animatronics are incredible in Italy. Yeah, we are right. Um, he is one of the biggest collector ever, and for the uh, man for who loves uh, the history of magic, is the biggest uh, uh, library in, in Italy, uh, probably one of the biggest in the world. How many volumes? Amazing. There's 22,000 magic books in, in another part of the... If you want, I can show you very, very fast. One second, come with me. This is off the rails. Books and I, and he, if you ask him to show you a trick, he still does ambitious card. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> okay. 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 Oh, under lock and key, too. <laughs> oh, Alexander Dekova. <laughs> wow, look at that library. Wow. The crazier thing is it's 22,000 books and he read all of them on the toilet. <laughs> This is actually the whole interview. We're just going to watch this in Statler and Waldorf throughout the whole thing. So, oh, okay. sounds great. <laughs> stop immediately. Okay, that's just a part, and, and there are. That's amazing. Two. So, that's enough for you. And uh, for us, not enough for you. Thank you very much. We disappear and uh, see you in one hour. Great right. to see you. Great to see you. Oh. Hey. <laughs> The beauty of the mask is probably know that's Juan Tamari is next to him. We have no yeah, idea. Absolutely. I'm just thrilled Westworld is now in our lifetime. So uh, so I am Eric Dittleman. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, I was actually the first mind reader on America's Got Talent. And I've done a bunch of other TV stuff, but we're not me. We're here to uh, talk to uh, someone I've, I've had the pleasure of knowing for the past seven years and has become one of my closest friends. Uh, uh, one of the funniest uh, comedy magicians, uh, but not just that, but also one of the funniest comedians without the magic. And I'm uh, thrilled to introduce, let's give a big round of applause to uh, Harrison Greenbaum, everyone. Harrison, good to see you. Thank you. Uh, what's your name again? <laughs> Eric Dittleman. Yes. Did I mention my name? I don't know no. if I did. <laughs> I love you, brother. This is going to be fun. This is going to be exciting. Absolutely, and I'm thrilled. And everyone's giving little uh, applause in the in the Zoom here. I see, and hopefully people are enjoying on the live stream as well. Uh, but I I wanted to get into before we get into your TV stuff. Um, you're obviously known for. me how it was done and I think that was the
became obsessed. So I was like five years old. Uh, and, you know, I guess the funny thing is you're always like, the, I became the magic kid. I was the kid in the town that knew magic and I would do bar mitzvahs before I was old enough to have my own bar mitzvah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I got very thankful that my parents decided to ship me out to magic camp. Um, I think part of it was to, because I was interested in magic, but part of it was because they got a week off from me. So it was, <laughs> it was the perfect win-win for everybody. And I remember going, being so cocky. I, I had, uh, there's a competition and I was like, oh my God, I know every trick in easy to master card magic. I'm obviously gonna be the winner. Uh, so I, I wore those VHS tapes out. I knew twisting the aces real good. And uh, as soon as I got there, I realized, oh my God, there's so much more to match. There's so much, I was interacting with other magicians and hanging out with other magicians really for the first time. Um, and that really opened my world up. And from that point, I mean, that was, it was like the matrix. Yeah. I, I was unplugged from the cave and I was in, I was in the matrix. I just, I know from uh, early on, just seeing photos of you as a little magic camper uh, and then becoming a counselor for Magic Tannen's camp and uh, and that being a huge part of your, your development. But at the same time, you also really got interested in comedy and that almost took a different route for you. So where did the, the comedy influence uh, happen? And tell us a little bit about the, uh, the starting the comedy club at Harvard. Yeah, so I'd always been doing magic and the magic was funny. I, it's the weird thing where unless you're like a serious Jeff McBride, people just assume you have to be a full on copy magician. So I was like, I'm, I'm gonna, I like making people laugh in, while I'm doing magic. Um, and then my freshman year, uh, there's what's called comping at Harvard. So a comp, Harvard always has, for some reason, has a term for everything instead of just using the normal term. So we don't have teaching assistants, we have teaching fellows. We don't have uh, majors, we have concentrations. Um, we don't have friends. That's uh, that's <laughs> we just don't have friends. Uh, <laughs> very sad and lonely place. Um, but <laughs> uh, you comp, so that's, that's how you essentially like audition to be in different clubs. And it's very similar to Magic Camp in that everybody comes there thinking they're the best. And then they realize that everybody is the best from their place. Mm. So everybody who's trying to get on the Harvard newspaper, the Harvard Crimson, was the editor-in-chief of their high school's newspaper. And they can't all be the editor-in-chief uh, of, the, of the Harvard newspaper. Right. So it, it's a rude awakening. And I just remember auditioning for everything, trying to get in every club. And I, was I wasn't getting anything. And the only thing that accepted me was the Jewish fraternity, A.E. Pi. And I think that's solely because the only qualifications were being Jewish and it was a fraternity. So being a man. So there you go. I was like, I have both of those kind of. Qualified. Yeah. I barely qualify, but I make it. <laughs> barely Jewish and barely a man, but I'll, but I'll take it. <laughs> so, so I joined, so I joined A.P.I. And... Mm -hmm. My spring semester, I just get a call from my fraternity brother who had seen me doing tricks at like, you know, while we were hanging out. And he's like, oh, would you mind doing magic tricks at this comedy show that I put together? It's, it's the only stand-up comedy show at Harvard put together by students. Uh, and I was like, do you mind if I try stand-up? Like, is that, is this, is this for like experienced comedians or is this for people who are learning how to do it? And he's like, yeah, do whatever you want. We don't care. It's super, super low key. I show up, it's like a sold out show. It's like over hundred people. And I'm already pot committed to do a stand-up show. So my first show is for this like sold out crowd in this big classroom. And uh, as soon as I did that first joke though, I realized, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. I was wearing my real clothing. Cause when I was doing stand uh, magic, it was very, very clean. You know, you had to wear like 
nice clothing. It was very hard to talk about how you felt because you, you know, at that time I was just doing the trick sort of, you kind of, you, you changed the presentation, but you, you did the, you were just kind of presenting magic. You weren't presenting your own ideas in a way. Uh, in magic, if you, in comedy, if you want to talk about abortion, you make a, a joke about abortion. Uh, I don't think there's really an abortion card trick. Uh, that's a challenge though. I think somebody can do it. Somebody here is going to do it and end up in that museum and it's going to be the best display. It's going to be interactive. Uh, but yeah, so that, I got, I got hit by the bug. Um, I, I, I was doing comedy from that point. I, I interned for Mad Magazine that summer. Mm -hmm. uh, that was like comedy writing boot camp for me. I, I was forced to write jokes every day, like a job, which, because uh, it was, uh, so that was amazing. And, uh, yeah, eventually I, I, I was doing open mics that I was interning for Mad Magazine. And then at night I would take the subway to these different comedy clubs where if you handed out flyers for two hours, they would let you uh, get on stage. Uh, and I would do that in the rain and I would just hand out these flyers and try. And you would show up at the venue and half the people there are people that saw you in the street corner soaking wet, being like, come to the comedy show. And I would get yeah. like five minutes at the end. And right before I went on, uh, this comedian saw me putting sponge balls in my pocket, my back pocket. And he goes, what an what embarrassing you... thing to notice. <laughs> yeah, well, he goes, what the hell are you doing? Like, he has no idea why I'm stuffing these like four balls in the back of my pocket. It looks weird. Uh, and he, I go, oh, I, I also do magic. And so I figured if the, you know, if the jokes don't hit, I can close really strong with this trick. And mm -hmm. he looked at me and he was like, if you, if you do that, you'll never learn comedy. Like take that, he, he used a word that I won't say. He used the dirty word, but he's like, take that stuff out of your pocket. Um, and, and I did, uh, and I probably bombed that night. Um, but that, having that feeling on stage where you, know, you will live or die by your jokes alone um, really, really changes <laughs> um, the way you approach comedy. Um, so it changed my life. And then for a while, I didn't even combine the two. I just wanted to do stand up and 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 be a stand up, get past that like clubs like the Comedy Cellar, um, mm -hmm. and have them not even know I was a magician. Let them just think of me as a fellow comic um, of their level. And that and then when I add magic in in other ways, uh, I want my comedy to be at that that level. Yeah, there's there's a couple places I want to go from there. Uh, one is uh, yeah, you getting past at all these prestigious clubs and everything like that. You've you've definitely carved out a career just in comedy. So what is it about magic that keeps drawing you back, and why go in a way where you're combining those in uh, in having that as a full career rather than just pursue one or the other? Uh, yeah, it. Magic has always been a part of me. I, I just love it so much. When I describe my career to people, because it's not the best career choice to essentially have two careers simultaneously. Right. <laughs> so they answer the phone, you're like, are you looking for a comedian or a magician? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I can do both. Uh, it, it's, I, I guess every time I'm doing stand-up comedy, I miss magic. And every time I'm doing magic, I miss stand-up comedy. So essentially I'm always miserable. That's, that's the real key to my career is to never be happy. It's the key right. to all comedy. Um, and I think it's interesting. I was just going to say with you, it's kind of perpetuating, right? So that, you know, when you're getting a little tired, I don't know if you get tired, but it, you're, you're kind of always looking over to the other pasture to see what's greener. And I think that is kind of like this perpetual motion machine that helps drive you in your creative uh, endeavors in both fields, which I've seen you constantly keep creating new and new material for both. 
Yeah. I, by the way, in the comments, you have Ariel saying that's very Jewish. I think he's he's responding to my saying I'm, I'm miserable all the time. Uh, that that's true. We are, we, Eric and I are are both Jews, and we are fueled by misery and sadness. That's that's our people's uh, trademark. Uh, and the mug. I did just obtain this mug at Target. That's a very fancy store in the United States, Target, and uh, it's a bear. I don't know why I wanted it, but as soon as we walked into the Target, Eric, I said. I must own it. I must. <laughs> this, I think it's a female bear. I don't know why I think it's a female bear, but I just, I don't know. She's great. Sorry, I don't know that. My, this, Amazon, Alexa's getting very upset. Okay, uh, sorry. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah, you're on those two paths. Well, the thing that's interesting is I always, I couldn't, at the beginning, I didn't know exactly what was the problem, but I knew there was something wrong with magic in mm -hmm. that most magicians were doing other people's material and that didn't feel right. Uh, and it didn't feel right either that if I would bring a friend to a magic show uh, and then I would bring them to another magic show and they would see a completely different magician doing the same tricks, same jokes. And at that point, be very confused. Like, wait a second, that person's, that cups and balls thing, anybody can just do it and it has the same jokes. Um, and, it, and it's hard to explain where you're like, that person's Gazo, that's, that's his routine. Mm -hmm. And that person bought Gazzo's routine and somehow that's okay. I don't know, it, that's just magic. <laughs> that approach, which I, I felt a little bit uncomfortable about. And then you go to stand up comedy and they just kind of go, here's the notebook, it's blank, write your own stuff. And if we catch you doing other people's stuff, you will be excommunicated from the industry. And I was like, this is, this is, this is great. This is perfect. Um, this is what art is, is sitting down at a computer or a blank notebook and, and coming up with just ideas and then figuring out how to make them work on stage. Uh, and then that was sort of the breakthrough was going, and, and it's the source of my lecture, you are all terrible, is saying like, wait a second, that's the actual approach is that you come up with an idea first, then you figure out how to make it work. And as soon as I started thinking in that way, it made magic so much more fun. Cause I would write this, I write the scripts for my trick before I even know how the tricks work. Cause I'm just mm -hmm. writing it like a stand-up bit. Um, so some of my more, signature effects, if I can call them, I don't know if I can call it, but like my FU trick was something that I wrote all the jokes for first without even knowing how the end was. I was like, I'll figure out a method later, but I just love this idea of building this trick up and then, you know, that being the punchline. Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing I was going to comment uh, was when people think of like comedy magician, there's that old adage like, oh, you're, you're half as good at magic. You're half as good at comedy. And if you put it together, you finally have a full act. Um, so, so what is your approach to like actually, you know, developing the comedy side alongside the magic and making those both strong and complement each other? That is a great question. Um, it's a, it's so weird because I've been I've, I've been doing Who Books That since March. And so I'm so used to being on the other side of this. This, this is very exciting. I know. And, and for those of you who don't know, Harrison does an amazing live stream called Who Books That, where he's interviewing other people. And uh, I haven't watched a single one, so I don't know what questions you ask. And I'm just <laughs> winging it. No, I'm just, I'm just messing with you. It's great. It's fantastic. Check it out. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're in the hot seat now. Yeah. And if you like Eric's interviewing skills, you can watch Mind Over Magic with Matt Franco, famous Las oh. Vegas magician. Thank you. It's a podcast. You can't watch it, but uh. <laughs> I like to watch it in my mind. I like to listen to it, but then I watch it. I just uh -huh. picture what's happening. I feel like you're stalling because you're in the hot seat now. So uh, how do you? <laughs> what was the question? The question was, how do you combine both the magic and the comedy? So they're both strong and they complement yeah. each other. 
I, there, there are different approaches. Um, I always say that most, almost every other comedy magician uh, is a magician who is doing comedy. Mm -hmm. uh, I am a comedian who is doing magic. And that distinction sort of guides my approach to the material, which means that the most important thing is the joke. Like I need to establish a funny premise uh, before I can really get into the magic. Um, I find it harder to come up with the funny stuff, the, the really funny stuff, than it is to come up with the method later um, to make the magic work. So it's harder for me to come up with the idea of uh, whatever trick is in my act um, than it is to actually, that for me, the, the easy, not the easiest part, but there's that part like, uh, I have a joke in my act about dead dogs. It's a long story to those who have no idea what I'm talking <laughs> about. But the bit took a really long time to build. It took months and months and months. And then at that point I was like, I really think this is the, I, I just had this idea in my head, which was what if I, the joke ends with a dead dog in a backpack. That, that's how the joke ends. And I was like, that's a really weird, funny image. Wouldn't that be cool if I had like a stuffed dog in a backpack and the tag somehow matched the name of somebody's real dog? And what kind of comedy can I get from that? <laughs> um, from setting up this whole dead dog thing and then talking to somebody about their dog. Um, and so then then the magic comes in at that point. Um, but yeah, and then and then at that point, I, I don't I want every joke to hit hard like a comedian. I want you to be laughing at the same rate of a stand-up comedian. And then when those magic tricks hit, I want them to be like legitimate moments. I don't want I don't want any magic to be a throwaway, especially because my tricks are so long because there are so many jokes that by the time you get to that moment, it better be a big moment. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, you, you mentioned your lecture that you've been doing on all of the convention circuits called You Are All Terrible. And it's uh, very blunt and to the point, uh, talking to magicians about this very thing, about how to approach creating material so that it is your own and unique. Uh, so I'll ask you, what makes magicians terrible? <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing about that title was it came from just a joke because mm -hmm. I was I was starting to headline Monday Night Magic. And there's that great hang that happens when everybody's teching and setting up before the show. Because um, that, that is the weird thing about the East Coast is that uh, West Coast has the castle. So there's a place to hang with uh, whenever you want with a bunch of magicians. But Monday Night Magic, as much as it's a, a hang, it's not a, a building. So you kind of take it where you can get it. So like before <laughs> the show, you're like with a bunch of magicians, it's great. And we were just talking about, oh, Ariel says, you were all terrible recently. Excellent lecture. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, and shout out to Richard. I hope you enjoyed your lunch. And uh, Larry, thank you. <laughs> Larry was there for a second. Um, Jeff, uh, Jeff Cowan's in the building too. That's very exciting. Um, anyway, sorry. Um, the, so basically I was talking about how most magicians are just doing other people's material, like I said before. Uh, and it would be so great to just go into a magic club or a magic convention and have the first slide just be like, you're terrible. You're all terrible. <laughs> Uh, here are the things that you need to stop doing and here's how to be not terrible. And it was just such a funny idea to me. And that's how all my ideas start is me just being like, this would be ludicrous. Mm -hmm. This would be ridiculous if I just walk into your convention and there's a big happy smiley face. And then next to it just says, you are all terrible. And that's the lecture. Uh, so I had the name of the lecture. Right. Uh, but with, with any good comedy, though, there's truth in comedy, too. So oh, you, you believe this in some level. And that's why you, you decided to go down this route for your lecture. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, there's no great reveal at the end, right? You go, just kidding. You're all great. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, 
we're all terrible. Um, and, and the key is to just strive to be less terrible. Exactly. Uh, and also it's nice because that, that lecture tells you exactly the tone that I'm going to hit. So if you, if you don't like the title, you won't like the lecture. Um, but it, would, it just came from uh, Ian Fernandez says this is lecture online. Um, it's not online yet, um, but I am working on a project to make it available to everybody. Um, so it's, it's been very exciting process. Um, but yeah, the lecture just came because it always like I've been complaining enough that I wanted to put my money where my mouth was and say if I if I feel this way, um, there's got to be a way to to help people or or at least say hey I've been in the stand up comedy world for a while now and they have some really good practices, uh, maybe we should consider that. Um, and Absolutely. at the beginning, of the lecture was just going to be me going through slides of certain things and saying no. <laughs> so just like linking rings, stop it. Just stop it. These rings don't exist in the world. Nobody owns giant rings. The fact that you can combine two things that don't exist in the world is of no interest. Parasol magic, we know that they get smaller. Nobody in the audience doesn't know that the umbrella is smaller when it's compressed and then large when you open it. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we do just because other people do it and we don't question it. And so that's really the heart of the lecture is to say, hey, just because you were taught this by other people in magic doesn't mean you have to do it that way. Um, ma ma it's an art form. It, you, to learn the rules, they're, they're meant to be broken. Absolutely. And you, and you mentioned that it's an art form in your lecture. And uh, do you believe, uh, because some people have brought this up as the debate, is magic an art? Is it not? And uh, I, I know my views on this, and I know you have very opinionated views on this. And I'm just curious if you can address uh, your consideration of magic as an art form. Yeah. So I think magic is an art, but most magicians are not artists. Um, hmm. the, I, the, the, we always talk about is magic an art. And there's been, I think, in, like when we tried to pass Magic Week, uh, yes. <laughs> that was a big, I think, I think Copperfield got behind like Congress mm -hmm. saying magic is an art form. Um, and stand-up comedians feel it even more because stand-up comedy is such a quote, low art um, it, that people fight whether it's art and we know, we know it is. Um, but my whole thing with magic being an art is if you want it to be, if you want to be an artist, then play by the art rules. Artists create unique pieces of art that represent their point of view at, at a base level. Um, and I think I have an earlier version of the lecture, I really went into like what a definition of art is. Uh, but the a magic is an art if you're if what you're doing is expressing to the audience. So there's always a an audience of some kind. Um, you're communicating to an audience your views upon the world within the restraints of a chosen art form. Uh, the restraints of the chosen art form, magicians have that. They're doing magic, yes. Um, but the idea of expressing your own worldview, that's where I think a lot of magicians just are, aren't doing it. You know, if you're do, uh, the, the slide in the lecture is if you're doing tricks other people created with scripts other people wrote based on performances other people did, you're a cover band. Absolutely, yeah, and yeah. Cover bands are fine. There's nothing wrong with being the, a journey cover band. Um, but the second a journey cover band starts acting like it's journey, uh, it's weird at best and criminal at worst. <laughs> and, and I think part of it too is the, the effort 
uh, that it puts in to come up with the original stuff is much uh, greater than it is just to see what someone else is doing and then doing it the same way. There's there's a there's a level of difficulty to come up with something new that's uh, out of the box thinking that you know is is untested too because there's this level of bravery that you have to go forward and uh, try things that might fail and that's scary a lot of the time. So I'm curious how you break in new material when you're working on it. Yeah, I mean, you're the perfect person to be asking that because you have a show. He, Eric has a show called Amaze Balls, which is every month. And it's the only show I know of that is advertised on the tin as this is an experimental magic show where people are trying new stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that's what you need. Like in comedy, that's just the rule is you have these what you call workout rooms and you get up on stage as many times as possible uh, in, in hopefully low stakes, uh, yeah, you know, obviously you don't want to go on your Tonight Show audition and start working on new material. <laughs> so granted, there are shows where you're not, you're not just working, experimenting. Um, but you find these rooms where you can be a little experimental. Um, you don't know a joke is funny. In comedy, a joke is not funny until an audience has told you it's funny with their laughter. It doesn't matter how funny you think a joke is. I still don't know. Um, and Seinfeld will, Seinfeld will tell you. Seinfeld doesn't know when he writes a joke on a pad, if it's gonna work. Uh, and Seinfeld's one of the best. Um, and, and that's always been fascinating to me is seeing, you know, pocket the seller working out new material and it not working, uh, not, eventually it works. Um, but that's, that's what a, the creative process really looks like is getting on stage, trying, failing, trying again. Okay, that, that part works. All right, let's ch change it a little bit. And piece by piece building a, a routine that that you know you feel is consistently entertaining and funny yeah that's that's great and i, I want to dive a little bit more into your uh, comedy writing practices uh, obviously you said that there's a lot we can learn from the comedy world that we can apply to the magic world so when you're creating a new joke uh how does that process start and then can you parallel that to when you're coming up with a new effect i know you said earlier you start with the idea and then try and find a magic effect to it but how do you come up with those comedic ideas and how do you how do you polish it as you go it's so hard I, I sometimes <laughs> feel like the hardest part for me is the premise mm -hmm. um because i'll be like last night you know i was talking to another comedian and he was kind of riffing material out and it was so easy for him um because he he basically started with a topic and then as once that ball is going it's my brain kicks in and i go what about this what about that what about that mm -hmm. for me the hardest thing is finding that topic that i can play with myself that's that's a terrible. <laughs> well, That's what comedy is. It's just playing with yourself. Yeah, we don't want to do that with recent news stories in the United States about going on Zoom and playing with yourself. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I do not support it. Um, no. Uh, so like, yeah. So you, the the and I say this in my lecture. The key is finding things that have emotional resonance, whether it be something that makes you angry, or something that makes you sad, something that makes you happy. Um, I think the happy approach is great because so many comedians come from a place of anger, like this makes me upset, that if you come from a place of, I love this weird thing about this thing, that is a much more, sometimes I think a more interesting, unique approach. Um, but it's just something that has an emotional resonance. And then I literally just kind of sit there and sometimes it's like drawing out a circle and connecting all the different things about the subject. Sometimes it's a about coming up with a rough idea of different directions a joke can go just roughly, like the joke could be this or this or this or this. And then I go on stage and I literally, I sandwich that joke between two killers 
So mm-hmm. I know that they, the audience knows I'm funny. And I also know that after this joke, if it's a mess, I'm going to get them back. And I just start talking on stage and you can hear immediately from the audience whether you're going down the right path or not. And you let the audience tell you. Uh, there's oftentimes what I think is the funniest part of a joke doesn't get a big laugh, but then this other part gets mm-hmm. a huge laugh. Um, an example of that would be, so I've been doing a lot of shows on parks and in rooftops because New York is, uh, this is New York park. You stand 20 feet away from the nearest person and then you yell jokes at them. Um, so I've been working out my sort of pandemic and I had a joke about this in New York at 7 p.m. I don't know who here uh, is international and uh, not, but in New York every day for a long time, we would clap at 7 p.m. We would just clap for the healthcare workers. And you could hear it, you would lean out the window and people were banging pots and pans. And I had a joke about it. It was a, it was a dirty joke about it. And as I was on stage, I, I had an, an idea and I started talking and I just said, like kind of very simply like, we remember that clap guys at 7 p.m. and everybody clapped and they go, and then we just kind of stopped. Nobody told us to. Cuomo didn't make an announcement. We just kind of all were like, they've had enough, right? Who are these, what do these doctors think? It's Broadway? And there was an immediate laugh response. And I was like, oh, I found, I, I, I've hit this vein. It's like mining for gold. I've hit the vein. Uh, all of a sudden, as soon as I started going down that path, people started laughing. And so at that point, now I have a premise to work on and I can really just shape it and, and use actual technique to figure out what's the exact best phrasing to make that premise come to life. Some ways when you're you're doing the stand-up, you're writing on the spot, you're improvising in the moment, coming up with ad-libs. You don't see that as much with magic because everything kind of has to follow a specific track in order to get to the reveal at the end. Um, but I'm curious how you've incorporated um, uh, like improv into your shows and uh, how you kind of, you already talked about these premise rooms of finding these things to play around with and using that improv tool of if this is true and what else is true. Uh, but uh, how are you using um, improv in your, in your comedy and how you're using it in your magic and also talk a little bit about your crowd work and using the Rolodex. Yeah. So I also the- see there's, uh, by the way, some some jokes are happening in the uh, chat and we'll get there in a moment, but uh, let's Elephant. just- Elephants let's, are happening. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know what's happening there. Uh, we'll, we'll maybe get to those at the end. And if you think your punchline is stronger than anything that's uh, coming out of Harrison's mouth, then we'll, we'll put it up on here as well. So, um, but yeah, how are you using improv and, and using that crowd work Rolodex? Yeah, well, uh, a brief uh, sort of sidebar, because I think it's interesting when we talk about improv and magic, because often improv, the improv community and the stand-up community in, in a place like New York is like the sharks and the jets. They are rival <laughs> rival tribes. And somehow we're friends. I don't know. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but I remember being a young baby comedian and a friend of a friend knew Louis Black and we're like, would you like to meet him? We, you can see his show. And then afterwards, we know what bar he hangs out with. He would love to say, say, say hi to a young comedian. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. <laughs> I was so excited when they told me that I was cutting, uh, I was putting butter on a piece of bread and I cut my finger open. <laughs> and I literally spent the whole meal with this guy who was the friend of a friend holding my thumb under the table. And he had no idea why I was going like up and down. I was making weird sounds. I'm sure he thought terrible things, but I was just bleeding out of my thumb with excitement. And <laughs> I finally meet Lewis Black. And he asked me, you know, uh, how long have you been in the city? What are you up to? 
And at that time, my sort of biggest credit was at Gotham Comedy Club, a place that I knew Louis Black had worked, had one of the waiters had started an improv team called the Red Tie Mafia. And I was a captain of, of, of this improv team. So I said, well, I'm doing all this stand-up. I perform every single night. Uh, sometimes I'm doing two, three shows a night. I'm working everywhere I can. And I'm also the captain of the Gotham Comedy Club improv team. And he stops and he looks at me and he goes, uh, basically, he goes, he says, he says a word I, I won't, I can't say, but mm -hmm. he said you like F improv. Yeah. He goes, you know why I'm a stand-up comedian? It's because I care enough about my audience to know what I'm going to say and know that it's going to make them laugh. And that really Absolutely. hit me. So yes, I think improv is a great art form. But when I say improving on stage, I'm going on stage with an idea. This is not like mm -hmm. pure improv. It's using that same skill Don't sets. know what I'm yeah. going to say. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I have, I'm flexible. I think that's probably better. I'm very flexible and I will follow my comedic instinct based on the audience's response and let them guide me. Um, but yeah, that, so that would be the difference between like pure improv and like stand up, where there is a plan. Um, although, yeah, on the, on the most workout of workout rooms, sometimes it is fun <laughs> to just go up there and be like, let's talk about cars. What do you, yeah. what do you guys think about cars? Well, even even when magicians are presenting too, uh, you know, uh, there's lovely books that talk about, you know, you have your script and that exists so that you can divert from it when need be. And when there, you know, something happens with a participant isn't following instructions the right way, you have to be in that moment and still react in uh, so that you're not just going on autopilot and you're not having that weird disconnect. So that's what I was kind of getting with, with, you know, the way you're using those improv skills in comedy. How are you using that? in in magic and then uh i know when you do talk to people you you have jokes kind of filed away that you can pull out at a moment's notice and kind of uh, interact with people so talk about that process as well yeah uh and heather and jeremy sanders said you are on zoom which is true and uh he did just fix his wand which if i if i tell which also will sound terrible when i how was your zoom interview well somebody was playing with their wand on camera uh <laughs> He's laughing. All right, uh, Heather, you look great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no one can see this. <laughs> oh, okay. No I one can see this. You. Um, with, with magic, yes, there are certain parts that you basically can't improvise because once you are locked into the method, uh, now have I forgotten that? There have mm -hmm. been moments where I forget that I'm not a wizard and I get to the end of the trick and I go, oh no. This trick doesn't just work. I have to have done stuff. Yeah, the uh, method is important. The method is an important thing to make sure is accomplished. Uh, so that's always important. Or like with my prices right, I have to be off by a certain amount at the end. And sometimes I just nail it like once in a while because <laughs> I forget that I, I need to make a mistake on purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a fun thing is to, to explain to the audience that like justifying, there's no ending if it's right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, anyway, uh, so the idea is giving myself enough room in the actual presentation of the trick within the premise of the trick that I can play and see what will work. Um, with magic, it's a lot more as I'm doing the trick, keeping a mental list of next time, what if I did this? Mm -hmm. Because and I like that you just said mentalist as a mentalist. So. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but like for my Snuggie thing, for example, um, I. I, I, there was a point where I, you know, he, the guy said, that's a, I said, this is my ninja robe. And he said, that's a Snuggie. And then in my head, I was like, 
The next line is, can your Snuggie do this? Like you, that's, I knew that was the next line. I knew it. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously I can't automatically make the Snuggie light, a, have a Jewish star light up on my chest in that performance. But as soon as I got on stage, I said, I need to build this thing. Um, similarly with that trick, um, I knew I was gonna reach into the wallet and the car was gonna say F you. And I realized, oh my God, he's gonna wanna peel the sticker off. Just like in the previous trick. Mm-hmm. So it better say F you again underneath that. And so that performance, I don't get that joke because again, I can't, it, the prop doesn't exist yet, but I know the next performance, I am absolutely going to try that. Um, so there's definitely that level of it of, oh my God, that's the, the moment. Uh, and then within the interaction with an audience member, I'm always trying to have fun and figure out what's the, the most fun, funniest way to interact with the person at that moment or do the trick and then see if I can replicate it so it's consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, so like with the, with the Snuggie trick, I get very physical with the audience member, um, obviously with his consent. Um, but I, I, we're doing that dance uh, evolved in Australia because I needed to play to a big house. And it was a little, at first it was very little of like, oh, let me just see if I like kind of grab him by the tie. By the end of that two and a half week run, I was like pulling the guy. <laughs> uh, again, it looks a lot harder than it is. It's very safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. the idea of, of, of just slowly ramping things up and going, wait a second, I think I could do this even further. Like, oh no, no, I can, I can push this joke. I can even do more with this thing. And sometimes it means trying a bit that does not work. And my favorite story, do you know about my, how my, my cell phone trick started? No, no, I don't. Oh, this, you will love this. Yeah, I think please. <laughs> so if, for those who don't know my act, uh, which is probably all of you, um, but uh, I do a trick where at the end of the trick, I, I, I essentially, well, I'll tell you what, how, how I started with it and how I ended. Right now in the show, I do a trick. I get all the prices for items. And then at the end of the show, uh, I do this whole thing where I, I have a cell phone on the end of a selfie stick. I'm running around the audience. And the total that ends up on the calculator is all of the prices in order spelled out. It's a very cool moment. Initially though, I had the idea of, cause I had all these jokes about cell phones and technology. So I knew I needed a trick involving technology. So I had all the technology jokes written. And I was like, I really want to do something where I, I, I grab a cell phone. Cause I've been making all these jokes about cell phones. I want to grab an audience member's cell phone and incorporate it. And the initial joke was it, it would be so funny because every magician has a trick where they talk about their grandfather and how their grandfather taught them a trick. And I thought, wouldn't that be funny if the trick my grandfather taught me was a trick that he learned as a kid, but it, it was, it's clearly a lie because all the props that he uses are things from now, <laughs> like a cell phone. Right, yeah. It was like, let me show you the trick I learned when I was a little boy in Europe. It involves an mm. iPhone. You're like, wait, what? It involved grew- Zoom technology. Right, so <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. my grandfather, this story is a complete <laughs> lie. And the joke is how egregious Uh, how much of an egregious lie is this story? So that's premise one. And as I'm playing with it before my first performance, my grandfather's a Holocaust survivor. And I go, wouldn't that be funny if you think that's why I'm using my grandfather? This is gonna be bad. It's gonna be very bad, Eric. Oh no. What is if I introduce my grandfather? I do the whole thing. So now I'm running around the, the room with a cell phone on a selfie stick. Everyone is entering their numbers in. Oh, um, no. Oh, no. I know the, where this is going. <laughs> and I get the total and I go, I told you it was my grandfather's trick. And I unroll my sleeve and the numbers on my arm match the numbers in, wow. in the calculator. Wow. 
Um, oh, man. <laughs> and I do it at Monday Night Magic. <laughs> Oh, and no. if I could describe the best way to describe the audience reaction, yeah, is, is another Holocaust comedy. Uh, is Springtime for Hitler in the in the movie The Producers? There's a right. moment when the Springtime for Hitler starts, and it cuts to the audience, and it's just silent shock. Yeah, and I remember Especially seeing for that, that crowd. Movie. Yeah, I remember seeing that movie, going, "Wow, that is really funny. That is, I love, I love that." Right. Uh, less funny when they're in 3D and it's real. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Just horrified silence. They were like, it matches, it matches. And you could just see them just shake their head with their silence. That's amazing. That you actually uh, didn't realize, but I had a question that relates to uh, this. So that was the perfect segue. But also, I just want to mention, I see a bunch of uh, co questions coming into the chat. I mean, I am clocking those. I'm, I'm taking note of those and we'll get to those as well. Uh, so keep sending uh, questions. We've only got a, a, about a 10 or more so minutes more. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that was a prime example of offensiveness. Uh, and I'm I'm curious of of your take on offensiveness, because I know there's uh, there's intentional offensiveness and there's not intentional offensiveness. And I feel like magicians are doing a lot of non-intentional offensiveness without realizing it. Uh, but, uh, you know, having intent behind what you're doing and uh, yeah, how you approach that, if there's any stories of where you took it a little too far and uh, also <laughs> and then tie that into, uh, yeah, that was a great example of one. <laughs> and, uh, and, and talk about your, uh, a little bit of your sushi theory. Uh, yes. I think that applies. Absolutely. Uh, and we said sushi and Larry just bolted. Larry's hungry. Now <laughs> ordering his sushi. Um, it, yeah, I, I, the, the, that, that example of the grandfather cell phone trick is, a, is an example, I think, of how comedy kind of works, which is, I don't know where the, Carlin talks about this, George Carlin. You kind of don't know where the line is until you stepped over it. Mm -hmm. um, my goal is not to constantly be stepping over the line. My line, my goal is to get as close as humanly possible and really tiptoe up to it. Um, and sometimes that does mean accidentally falling over it. That's just part of the process. Um, so after I did that trick the first time, uh, I didn't do it that way again. <laughs> right. Exactly. That was not the response I was looking for was shock and sadness. Mm -hmm. um, th there is this weird thing too where beginning comedians um, just want to hear an audience response. They just want to hear laughter. And so they, or, or they just want to hear a noise. And by saying something really shocking or horrible, they'll get that response. They'll get an odd, it'll be a gasp or a groan or something, um, but they'll get a response. And so you see a lot of beginning comics go for shock or taboo right away, just because it puts sound in the room. Um, I do think, obviously I believe in artistic expression and I think magic actually needs to push the envelope a lot farther than it does, a lot mm -hmm. farther, um, but always with respect. I mean, that's the key, right? Um, I think you can talk, you can make jokes about race, but don't be racist. Um, mm -hmm. You can make jokes about gender, but don't be a misogynist. Um, there, there are, I think we do want to, you, you still need to be respectful of humanity, <laughs> uh, but I, I think you can make fun of everybody and anything. Uh, there's just an approach to doing it. Um, make fun of the, the perpetrators, not the victims. Um, but yeah, there's nothing off limits, um, but yeah, I, I do think that in the com comedic process, once in a while, uh, if we want to find out where the line is, you're going to step over it. Um, and hopefully you do it in a place where, uh, you know, it's it's a workout room where you're allowed, you're, you're, you're encouraged to be experimental and try things out. 
Um, and sometimes I have to go through a really painful process with material where it's not saying what I want it to be saying. And then all of a sudden uh, I figure out the right approach to it. I'm like, okay, I can talk about this very difficult topic. Um, but it took, it took a while to get there. Absolutely. And, and you even, when you design your show, you don't want it to be for everyone either. Right. So the sushi model. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> In my lecture, I talk about some people are vanilla pudding and some people are sushi. I think real art has a point of view. Point of view means it expresses an opinion. That means that not everybody will agree with you. So if you have a strong enough opinion, people will have a strong enough opinion uh, disagreeing with you. And that, that's good. That's what art is about. Um, I would rather have 95% of people who watch me love me and then five per the other 5% hate me than have 100% of the people kind of like me. Uh, vanilla pudding, people kind of like. It's why they serve it at hospitals. Nobody loves it. Oh my God, my day was made when I had vanilla pudding. But sushi, people will go out of their way to get great sushi. They'll spend hundreds of dollars to get the best sushi. And there are some people on this planet who don't like sushi. They find the whole idea revolting. And if you mention sushi, they're like, no. Like I've been on dates with people who don't like sushi. They, they don't like it. Yeah. I'm one who does not like it. We, yeah. I, I was raising my hand to say we've been on dates. That's right. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way we have. We go, we hang out a lot. Best friend dates. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I always say you should be sushi. Um, mm -hmm. you, it's okay that you, this idea that you want to be this like so generic and vanilla that nobody can hate you just leads to really boring art. And yeah. so, yeah, I'm going to express, I'm going to do a trick involving Harry Potter and the Bible. And that's not, that's going to be a turnoff to 5% of my audience. Tough. Absolutely. I, you don't have to agree with me to enjoy my comedy. That's the other thing that's weird is like nowadays people, I think are, are weirdly, weirdly feel like their comedy has to align with their point of view. And that's just not the case. Um, as long as it comes from a place of basic respect um, and, and the idea that, you know, like you're, you're not putting down person, uh, we can definitely talk about ideas and have fun. And like, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, that, that's just my approach. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit back to uh, the comedy a bit. Uh, Manus in the chat asked if you, uh, what comedy books you recommend for magicians? Yes. Um, there's the, 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 real, the reality is the, the, the best teacher for comedy is to just get on stage and fail a lot. There's really no substitute for failure. <laughs> you have to get on stage and you have to start training your body to feel that fight or flight response on stage of like, oh my God, these jokes have to work. And if you, if you do the joke, listen to the audience response and then adjust the joke based on that audience response, eventually you'll end up with a joke that hits consistently. Uh, and when you find it, man, it's gold. It's the most exciting thing in the world to have this piece of material, this joke, let's say, where you know that when you say it, nine times out of 10, it's gonna crush the audience. Um, and that took me years. Like I, 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 every time I think I know what crushing sounds like, two or three years later, I realized that I can get more out of the audience, that my joke can get people to laugh so hard. They physically, like every, every you kind of level up. Uh, I remember seeing Bill Burr once and it just tore the room apart in a way that I was like, oh my God, my jokes need to do that. If my jokes don't do that, I'm not, I'm not at the mountaintop yet. Um, Absolutely. And so then you tear up everything and you start over again. Um, but yeah, I, 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 in terms of books, uh, Born Standing Up by Steve Martin, it's just a fun read. Um, there's a lot of great books where they interview comedians. Um, uh, Judd Apatow has one. Um, Franklin AJ has one. Mike Bent, who is a magician, has a great book on comedy writing um, that has some really great tips in it. 
Um, so that that's definitely worth checking out. But there, there really is no substitute to just getting on stage. I'm grabbing my books there. I believe that's the Mike Bent one. There it is. The Everything Like <laughs> Comedy Writing. It's a great book. Um, yeah, that's great. And I also um, wanted to say there's uh, um, you kind of uh, uh, break uh, a joke. You were talking about going up to the line for offensiveness, but like sometimes when you're working a joke, you you keep cutting it down and trimming it down until you break it until and then take one step back. I've heard that philosophy. Do you apply that to magic at all? And uh, can you talk a little bit? And can you talk about your your leaping over the gap theory as well? I mean, we're running out of time, but uh, yeah. uh, concisely. The three C's of comedy are compression, contrast, and clarity. If your joke is not working, it is failing on one of those three levels. Contrast says that there are two forces fighting each other in the joke, and you need to increase the contrast between the two to make it funnier. By the way, this is the speed, 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 speed. This is the speed version of your lecture. Of my lecture. But if you're watching, here's the speed version. Compression says that a joke needs to, to, to contain as much information as possible, but in the smallest amount of space. And one of the best tools for that is just cutting words out and reducing the amount of things you are saying until it breaks, until the joke stops getting laughter. And then you go one more step back. That, that's the key. Um, Heather is holding up a book, Heather and Jeremy, the comedy magic, but I do not know that one. Uh, I would avoid any book that is both comedy magic. Um, you should be buying a book from a comedian, a stand-up comedian or a comedy writer. Um, too often these comedy magic books are written by magicians who do comedy and not comedians who do magic. Um, so I can't speak to that book specifically, but as a rule, if you wanna learn comedy, learn it from a comedian who gets on stage every night and it's his job to make you laugh. Um, that's how you really uh, pick that up. Um, uh, so, and clarity is just being clear with your jokes. Those are the three things, compression, contrast and clarity. And then Sylvia, by the way, said, could you share your opinion about female magicians? Please, please, please. I was uh, going to ask that female is in quotes. So I'm curious if they meant uh, something else or just using the term female magicians. That that's not. My, yeah. My lecture, yeah. And, yeah. And I'm happy to do this because we have 200 magicians on the line. Every time I do my lecture, when I am afforded the privilege that is having an audience, especially of other magicians, um, I always do a PSA, which is stop being creepy to women. There will be more women in magic if you're all less creepy. Uh, don't be creepy. Uh, treat women with respect. Uh, and we will have more women in magic. We need more women in magic. Uh, and you're responsible for there being not as many. So stop being creepy. And the other thing is, when you introduce a magician, uh, a female magician, uh, don't say female magician. There's no need to qualify that. Uh, female ma magician is just a magician. Uh, you don't say, hey, <laughs> look at this doctor. Look, I have a great lady doctor, uh, unless she's a gynecologist. But if you just have a, a doctor who happens to be a female, you don't go, wow, I have such a great woman doctor. You just say doctor. Um, so th that, that is my PSA uh, on women in magic. Uh, stop being so creepy. Um, be respectful, uh, both of your female audience members, your female uh, colleagues, and just females in general. <laughs> So I think Absolutely. that's what Sylvia wanted. And I, I'm yeah. glad she asked that question because uh, that's 200 magicians around the world that hopefully uh, we, we can really actually make a, a difference. I agree. And uh, I think we are going to start to wrap up. Uh, it's about our time. Sorry if we didn't get to your question, but you can uh, reach out and, uh, and chat with uh, Harrison or myself as well. Uh, and uh, let's, uh, let's plug, where can we find more info about you? Yeah, uh, so I have a show every week on Wednesdays called whobookstat.com. It's a show that's sponsored by the International Brotherhood of Magicians, uh, whobookstat.com. It's a fun, uh, our last interview was Banachek. 
um, the interview before that with John McLaughlin, the former acting director of the CIA, who's also a magician. Um, so whobooksthat.com. You can follow me at Harrison Comedy. Uh, I do a show called Scam Online with uh, one of our uh, mutual best friends, Patrick Davis, called Scam Online. That's magicscam.com. Or please don't visit this website.com. I said, please don't do it. And I, you're still going to do it. I don't know how else to ask for it. Please don't visit this website.com. Um, what you can visit is harrisongreenbaum.com, uh, which has all of my tour dates, all of my stuff. Um, you can catch me all over. I'm doing the, the Magic Castle show tonight. Um, I'm a, a whore and I am everywhere. And I will, if there's a microphone in an audience, I shall perform. So you can see me virtually, uh, mostly, and sometimes in a park. I've seen that firsthand. That's amazing. And if you want to keep in touch with me, um, you know, just find me on all the social media at E Diddleman. Uh, make sure you spell Diddleman right. D-I-T-T-E-L-M-A-N. And you can check out my new podcast with uh, magician Matt Franco, Mind Over Magic podcast. Uh, but thank you so much, uh, Harrison. It was so nice catching up with you again. I'll see you later when we play games together this weekend, probably in our little socially distanced bubble group of friends that, uh, you know, we're being <laughs> responsible with. Uh, but thank uh, you so much for jumping in and doing this uh, to Jeff Williams, who Jim Cleefield is in the house, Ian Fernandez, who said nice things about who books that. Sylvia, of course, Sylvia Agnello. Hello, Heather and Jeremy Sanders. Saunders, do they work for KFC? I don't know. Are they colonels? Uh, Gaia, Zachariah, <laughs> um, Andre Rodriguez, Ollie. Uh, there's a bank transfer information, which is legit. I, I believe it's legit. Um, and, uh, and the talk that's coming up next, uh, I believe it's gonna be introduced, but uh, is Ali Cook, who I saw uh, lecture in England at the Magic Circle. He is a fantastic talent um, and uh, is definitely worth sticking around for. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and, and Walter looks like he's in the car. This is very exciting. <laughs> Where are you going, Walter? Are you Ubering? Are you paying the bills post-pandemic? Eric for the interview and thank you very much Arizona Greenbaum because uh, he, I, I read the messages I, I saw the um, interview and you say so such amazing things and I really hope to have you both in Italy and I hope that we can do the Masters of Magic Convention and it would be a great honor for me to have you with us if you if you would like to join us uh, next year. That would I be hope. my pleasure I would love that. There you go. And there might be questions while you're in the backseat of that car, trivia-wise. Yeah, because the idea is that I'm traveling 100 places in uh, in Piemonte because I'm still awake since um, 60 hours. And uh, I say that was a big problem because we stopped everything. I want to show that uh, uh, realizing the impossible is just a choice. And so I will... I will awake for the next uh, 40 hours. And so at the end, I will cover all the 100 hours of the interview. That's the, the challenge. That I... That's incredible. What is it? Wow. This whole thing is just a hallucination from lack of sleep. <laughs> and, and we've lost, <laughs> we lost That's Walter. That's the problem from live streaming from the back of a car, I guess. So, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> Okay, I, I, I missed something because uh, um, probably the car. But, You're good. Uh, okay. Well, no, thank you so I, much, I Walter. Thank you, and I can't wait to hang with you in Italy. Yeah, thanks for having us. 